Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Well, good morning. Glad you're able to be here with us today on a, uh, the chilliest of our, our December days so far. You see snow start to fall yesterday, and I start to ask myself uh, how much snow is going to be too much snow for us to have people get on the roads. But I'm glad that you're able to join us today. Uh, if this is your first time here at City Collective, welcome. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And we, as we say this every week, wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, not sure about Jesus, and you're just here on a Sunday in December because it feels like the right thing to do, you're really welcome here. We are in the second week of Advent, in the second week of our Advent series titled Yahal. Yahal is the Hebrew word for hope. And so we're asking the question is, why can we find hope in Jesus? And sometimes a, a tradition or a season can really move quickly and pass us on by. Maybe it's because of busyness, familiarity, ignorance. There's a variety of reasons why we can just skirt past the idea of Advent in general. But whatever it is that you've thought about Christmas, we want to come back to the central idea that Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about the arrival of Jesus into the world and what that means for us in our everyday lives. We want to discover that for ourselves. What we know is this. Advent is about waiting and waiting is hard. Whether you're, you're one or you're 75, waiting is difficult. Whenever I'm trying to explain to Mia that she needs to wait for something, she clearly does not understand the difference between now and later. She hears the word and she thinks, I'm going to get it immediately. Waiting is hard. And I don't know if we ever really lose that completely. We long for the immediate sense of gratification. We long to have everything that we are desiring instantly in the moment. And it, it, it has implications to it. We're impatient people, and so we, we get overwhelmed by this need for instant gratification, which creates overwhelming anxiety and sometimes a sense of just gnawing discontent. Over and over again, Advent is this invitation of, why won't you wait? Because in the waiting, you're actually going to discover something so much more than what you think you're receiving in the moment. Often, in that space of waiting, I, I think that we lack the ability to wait because we don't find it peaceful. It, the, the word peace, in many ways, is an attractive one. In our current global climate, the word peace is an attractive idea. That conflict would end, that peace would reign. We, we can get behind that. And we can think about that for maybe others, but so often for ourselves, especially the way that we see the world take place around us on a daily basis, peace does not seem so easy, easily found. Instead, what we do is we look to find things to fill that space of peace. These, these false purveyors of peace. N.T. Wright, he has this quote that says, We have a thousand machines for making war, but none for making peace. 
We have computers and iPhone apps that can make millions out of a tiny change in exchange rates, but none that can rescue the poorest countries from their plight. We know how to make internet pornography, but not how to repair marriages. The very objectivity or neutrality of scientific knowledge as commonly conceived has played into the hands of the gods we secretly worship. These false purveyors of peace we give ourselves to, and I don't know about you, but more often than not, I find them to be lacking. I find that they provide false hope, false promises, false peace. And when I look at the fruits of our life, they're not the ones that Jesus intends for us or the ones that he invites us into or the ones that he promises us. And so today what we're going to be talking about is this idea of peace and priests and in many ways the promises that God has for us. I imagine you've all heard the phrase, looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, I think we look for peace in all the wrong places. More often than not, our pursuit of peace is more about the scheduling of momentary relief from the busyness of life. I'm going to find peace because at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday, I get to go get a massage. Or I'm going to find peace because I'm going to make my way out to the mountains on a Saturday morning and then hopefully there isn't too many people there because I want to enjoy the sunrise by myself. And actually that peace is easily disrupted because two people come along and one guy's got the gall to be playing some music on his speaker in the middle of nature. Big faux pas. Come on now. Don't get me wrong. I love a little self-care. Massage, Cairo, that like cupping thing, if it's good enough for Michael Phelps, it's good enough for me. Um, Benefits are there, and I'm going to try and use them. It's great. But so often we equate the practices and the processes and the things we do to garner an element or a, a space of momentary relief to this general idea of peace. Someone's asking, are you a peaceful person? Well, I do a lot of things that make me feel peaceful in a moment. And then we hear this idea of Advent and this invitation of peace, and it's just simply not the same thing. Momentary relief isn't the promise of peace that Jesus gives to us. Peace that we know it as is escapism, it's avoidance, it's ignorance, it's self-talk, it's optimism, it's a place, it's a feeling, but it's most certainly not what Jesus is talking about. We go looking for peace in all the wrong places. And sure, there can be good moments, but ultimately, it isn't the type of peace that our soul longs for. The word peace isn't unique to the Bible. Most cultures and traditions speak of peace. And most often, it's associated with the absence of war and conflict. The Bible has a similar lean, but it also points to one step further. It points to the presence of something better in its place. Not to simply remove something, but to replace it with something better. Not simply absence but the invitation of wholeness, of completeness. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the word for peace is shalom, while the Greek uses the word irene in the New Testament. Tim Mackey, he talks about shalom referring to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks or a completed stone wall with no gaps or missing bricks. Something that is complex with lots of different pieces that is in a state of completeness. That is the word shalom. And because what is life if it's not complex? 
I don't think we have to look too far for ourselves to look at the complexity that exists for us. From work to relationships to family to ambition to past experiences to our, our current financial situations to global situations. Everything seems to be bombarding our very existence and our walls that are being built around us most certainly don't feel whole. There's bricks that feel missing or ones that feel cracked because any, any type of disruption seems to pull at the peace that we long for. The central idea of biblical peace that I want you to hold on to in our talk this today is a recognition of the complexity of life in all its moving pieces and recognizing the impact upon us when even one of those is out of alignment or missing. When that happens... Our shalom, our peace breaks down. Our peace is disrupted. And wholeness needs to be restored. In Luke chapter 2, the announcement of Jesus' arrival is accompanied by the Greek word for peace, Irene. That is to say, Jesus' birth was meant to bring peace into the world. To bring wholeness, restoration into the world. In Isaiah 61, the Messiah that Jesus would reveal himself to be is named as the Prince of Peace. There's an association of peace, of wholeness, of restoration with the arrival of Jesus and with the person of Jesus in our lives. But he wasn't the only royalty associated with the language of peace. In Genesis chapter 14, a figure named Melchizedek makes an unexpected cameo in the, Exodus, or in the Genesis story. The story of Abraham shows us that at one point, at this point we see he's received God's promise. And he would go on to be a great nation despite being childless. He's given this promise. And before everything kind of takes its next step in the story, there is this interruption of a story in the in-between. His lot nephew had decided to take a piece of land that looked particularly prosperous. And it was situated beside the kingdom of Sodom. Despite it being that way, he, he occupied the land. And what took place is that he involved in this tribal warfare. And he was taken hostage along with many individuals from the kingdom of Sodom. And so Abram, he hears this, this plight of his nephew. And he makes a decision, I'm going to do something about it. And he goes and he rescues his nephew Lot. And this is where it gets interesting. Upon the rescue taking place, he's approached by two individuals. Abraham is. One of them being the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom asks for his people and says to Abram, I'm going to leave you with all of the riches that you have taken. But I want my, those people back. What, what scholars postulate is that he was actually desiring for the people that were captured to be returned to him because they were meant to be slaves. So Abram, he rejects his requests and he returns all of the possessions because he did not want to be associated with the wealth of Sodom. Another figure approaches and it was the, the, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And he was known as a king, but also the priest of the Most High God. And this, in, this character is an interesting one in the Bible. He's only mentioned three times. Once here, once in Psalm 110, and finally in the book of Hebrews, where, where we'll be spending some time. And so what he does in response to the recovery of Lot and those individuals is he brought bread and wine. He blessed Abram. 
Abram responds in a, in a generous manner as well. And there is a clear connection that this most high priest was different in his response. This king of Salem was different than the king of Sodom. Where the king of Sodom had power and control and greed on his mind, the king in Salem, of, of Salem had blessing and generosity and peace on his mind. Interesting story, but why does it matter? Our reading for this morning gives us some insight. In Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says this. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Jumping to Hebrews 5 verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned from obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why does this matter? Salem means peace. So this Melchizedek is a high priest of peace. And Jesus is not simply viewed as another to come. It's his name specifically as part of this order of Melchizedek. That is to say, Jesus isn't simply fulfilling the station of king that we talked about last week. He fulfills the station of priest. It means that someone in the order of Melchizedek is the high priest of peace. And that person is Jesus. A person who would function in a different way than simply a king. Last week we talked about how hope is not simply optimism. Hope is not simply a nice idea. Hope is not simply a feeling. Hope is a person. That hope is discovered in a confidence that we have in knowing the character of a person. And if Jesus is named as the king of kings, we need to know what kind of king he is to have our hope placed appropriately in him. But the, the beautiful thing is in the Old Testament, there is not just a single station that is spoken of this Messiah to come. There's a station of a king, of a priest, of a prophet. And all were occupied individually on the landscape of the Old Testament. But when it comes to the New Testament and the arrival of Jesus, we see one person who's able to fulfill every station. One of a king and one of a priest. And this matters to us because the function of a king is many, in many ways different than the function of a priest. A king holds rulership and authority and power most definitely. But what we want to talk about is the way in which a priest functions is good news for us. In that station, there is a powerful picture of who Jesus is and why the picture of a priest brings the wholeness that peace invites us into. So we're going to look at why Jesus being our high priest matters. 
I don't know about you, when I think of a priest, it's funny, you become a pastor and everyone refers to you in different ways. Sometimes they just ask you, are you old enough to be a pastor? And I'm like, yeah, get, I got a baby face, it's okay. <laughs> don't wait, don't ask me to shave my beard. Everyone refers to you differently. And sometimes they come from like a Christian tradition that has an exposure to maybe more in an evangelical setting uh, where it's like sneakers and, and a t-shirt on a Sunday. Or maybe it's more of a high church environment and they automatically refer to you as a, as a, as a priest or, or father. Or there's like language associated with it. I would say that our understanding of a priest is very different than one in the ancient Near East. Uh, we, we don't characterize it in the same way. We don't see that the requirements are the same thing. We don't see the function to be the same way. And so what is being told to us in the text can be really easily misconstrued. We need to understand what a priest is for the Jewish listener. For someone that it was a different station than simply maybe a t-shirt and, and shoes. Priests in the Old Testament, still very religious in nature but differing for a, a Jewish audience. For, a, for Israel, a priest represented God to the people and the people to God. It operated in what we call the Old Covenant. After God delivers the Israelites from the Pharaoh's oppression, he calls them to be a kingdom of priests. And this isn't the first time that he's called humanity to this. It's been a constant call from God that he wants his people, his followers, to be a kingdom of priests. When we look at the Genesis story and we look at the garden, Adam and Eve are invited to be the first royal and high priests. And they fall short in curating the garden and caring for the role that they're invited into. Then we take steps forward and we look to the Exodus story and we see this invitation for the people of Israel to be a royal priesthood. And they, they get to this moment at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is a moment where they can all experience the presence of God. But they're so fearful that only Moses goes to the top of the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. And he receives pictures of this tabernacle to come and this high priest to come. And he comes down and he sees that they're not being a royal priesthood one bit. If you don't know the story, they... They decide to take things into their own hands and worship another god. And the one who would be a priest for them is leading the charge and it's a mess. This invitation for them to be a royal priesthood is abandoned fairly quickly. That God is gracious and he continues to make an effort and, and an intention to be with them. This is what we see over and over in, in the Bible. We use the language, we sang the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. God with us is what Emmanuel means. But this isn't the first time that God has made this, this push or this attempt to be with his creation. From the very beginning, there's this longing from God to be in relationship, to be with humans and with you and I. And so even when we see the people of Israel, the tabernacle is built... There's a space called the Holy of Holies where a priest was able to enter, commune with God, represent God, uh, people, the people to God, and then come out and represent God to the people. The function of a priest is threefold. It was to gather up the praise of creation and direct it to God. So this is sacrifices. Represent God to people and vice versa. And intercession on behalf of the people. Those were the three functions of a priest. So when the language of priest is applied to Jesus, there's these elements of function that become associated with it as well. Jesus is often compared to the lines of priests from the line of Aaron. We see that in Hebrews 5 through 7. 
And these priests, they represent Israel before God and they offer up sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. However, the same priests that are going into these holy of holies, they are themselves morally flawed and need to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well. So at a baseline, this system, these priests, there's, there's a brokenness. There's not wholeness that's fully achieved in this situation. That is to say, what we find in this text is that Jesus was needed. It wasn't just that he was the next one to show up. He is the fulfillment of the priesthood. There needed to be one who comes who is not morally flawed, who is not lacking in any way, but provides the completeness that we long for because with completeness and wholeness is peace. And when peace enters into a situation, it doesn't stay isolated, but it becomes something that reverberates throughout a space. Have you ever been around a peaceful person? Someone that enters into a moment of conflict or brokenness and you say to yourself, oh, it's going to be okay. We get momentary glimpses of what peace looks like when it enters into a difficult situation. What Jesus wants to do is not simply be a momentary relief, but to be the, the overwhelming source of peace and wholeness and rest for all of humanity, for all of time. This is what our soul longs for because it is what Jesus wants to bring to us. He is the royal high priest that we have needed all along. And remember, Jesus doesn't come from the line of Aaron. He was instead a priest of the order of Melchizedek. This mysterious priest king of ancient Jerusalem. And the Bible says that he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is introduced without genealogy, without reference to his birth or death. And this is key. Because in the ancient world, the legitimacy of an individual's priesthood depended on their genealogy. The author's omission of the genealogy of Melchizedek implies that he didn't obtain his priesthood because of his ancestry. He didn't obtain his priesthood because of where he was born. Jesus' priesthood is not determined by his ancestry. It's not determined by where he's born. And he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. What does this mean for us? We are not simply being a, a royal high priest that's before us, but we're invited to be part of a royal priesthood because when Jesus comes and on the cross there is the death that takes place, there is a tearing of the veil, an opening of the Holy of Holies, and an invitation to all of us that we might enter into the presence of God where real peace and wholeness is found because it's not based on it's not based on your genealogy. It's not based on the things you've done. It's not based on the things that you'll do. It's not based on anything but simply the grace and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That you're invited. I'm invited to be part of this priesthood. And being a priest is not simply that you got to do all the traditions and the functions. It is an invitation to experience the presence and relationship with God. What does it look like in the Old Testament? They're the ones who get to enter into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. What is Jesus doing in this moment? He's making it so that all of us can experience that. 
if, if Christianity has simply become a function of practice, maybe prayer, maybe scripture reading, maybe some way of Sabbath or different things that you're trying to do so that you can achieve ultimate Christian status. I don't know if that exists. This is not what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting you into the presence of God. In the presence of God, we find wholeness. And wholeness is the peace that our heart and our soul longs for. Jesus is so much more than simply Melchizedek. He forgives sins according to his own authority, unlike the priests of the Old Testament. Jesus alone is the high priest who meets the needs of all who trust in him. And not only that, he himself became a sacrifice that brings us the eternal promise of peace and reconciliation with God. Jesus does this with purpose. The Bible uses this language of the high priest that Jesus comes to be. Because he's coming to reconcile the relationship between humanity and its creator. A restoration of relationship to be in the presence of each other. And it's not just for a time to come, but it's in for us here and now. Jesus brought peace to earth. In Hebrews, it talks extensively of this. We can talk about the royal priesthood for honestly months. But in Hebrews chapter 5, it, it says this. That Jesus, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Since he himself is subject to weakness. This is part of the beauty of the function of a priest versus that of a king. Because a priest is one of the people. A priest knows what it is to, to be with the people. And for Jesus, he empathizes with our weakness. He experiences temptation. He provides a reason for our confidence and hope. He provides help in time of need. He overcomes sin and death. And he lives to intercede. The Bible says that he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's advocating for us. Even now, at the right hand of the Father. Why does that all this matter to us? Well, I think peace is hard to come by. I think it's really difficult to feel at peace. We often search for temporary calm. And sure, we would all welcome that in a moment, but it's more the momentary tranquility that situation or circumstances can bring. The peace that we're looking for is a peace that lasts. And I think what we are actually longing for is the wholeness, the shalom, the biblical peace that we see offered to us. The high priest of peace makes a way where it seems impossible. So I want to name a couple different things that I think can be thieves of peace. The enemy talks about, or sorry, the Bible talks about the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the things that is often stolen from us is the peace that we have. And there's a number of different things that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis that are robbers of our peace. One of them would be conflict. Conflict that arises in our life is a thief of peace. And often conflict is situated around a vying for power. 
You can think about it in a wider sense and you can name that for nations. But think about it on a more micro sense for yourself as well. Where conflict is often arising out of this feeling of I need to be right or I am right. And I need them to realize that they're wrong. It's, it's, it's vying for power. And it's even if it's in the pursuit of justice. It can be for good things but conflict when it becomes an overwhelming, all-consuming piece of our life. I think we can all agree it's not peaceful. We have trouble sleeping. We're thinking about it all the time. We're overwhelmed by the idea of it. Jesus, he says to us that he's experienced, he's been subject to our weakness. And our weakness is found in those moments of conflict where we're always pursuing control or power. Instead of actually submitting ourselves to a greater authority and letting peace wash over us. Worry and anxiety often can overwhelm us, especially when it comes to things like health or finances or even just general negativity. We can find that taking place on a day-to-day basis. I, I find this for myself. I'm often prone to worry or anxiety the more busy or hurried I am. And culture is often pushing us in that direction. Right? you got to be busier to be more effective. You're, you're, you're a better human. You're a better person the busier that you are. You're more successful the busier that you are. And as that culminates and as that moves forward and as that builds within our life, we begin to see that worry and anxiety just become a normal part of our existence. That we're more worried just placating and surviving rather than eliminating. We try to moderate our worry and anxiety because it's just a reality that I have to exist with. In the hurried existence that I'm in. Jesus is subject to our weakness. He knows what it is. He's empathizing with it. And when he comes in, he wants us to find wholeness. These are cracks that exist within our being. Fear is what happens next often. We feel a great deal of fear about what's going to happen in tomorrow. Maybe it's fear around what's in the global situation. That it, it can spark feeling of of being overwhelmed, unable to actually deal with the situation that we see in front of us. Maybe it's an uncertainty of the future that creates fear within us. Fear is not a fruit of the relationship with God that is desired for us. Fear is not a fruit of being in intimacy with the Father. Fear is a byproduct of allowing ourselves to place ourselves on the highest place of authority. When we think that we have the highest control, fear begins to take control. Guilt and shame, sin and bitterness, these things overwhelm our life. And then pride, the sense of entitlement that can come around in our situations and make us lack peace. Worship team, you can join me at this time. Many of these aspects of the thieves of peace, are born out of this self-control mindset. Elevating ourself above all else. And so we need to recognize that Jesus is the king of kings, but he's also this royal high priest that invites us into this space of reconciliation and healing and wholeness. The central idea of biblical peace is a recognition of the complexity of life and all its moving pieces. And how even when even one is disrupted, our shalom breaks down. I wonder for us this morning, what is disrupted? Where has your peace been taken from you? 
where does wholeness need to be restored? The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the Jesus story is that he sees us in the midst of our brokenness and he comes right into the middle of it and he wishes to provide healing and wholeness and restore that which has been lost. He offers himself as the final sacrifice, the end of the sacrificial system. He opens up the holy of holies so that all might be in the presence of God. Not simply for a performatory sake, but because the good news of the gospel is that all are welcome to find hope, peace, and new life in Jesus. All. Not based upon our own deeds, but based on who Jesus is. And that invitation into the presence of God provides the wholeness that our soul longs for. C.S. Lewis says, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose again. He restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. And this is why Paul says about Jesus that he, Jesus himself is Irene. He's peace. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but I have failed to be. And now he gives me his gift of life. So this morning in this pursuit of peace and what we might actually find in the midst of it. I wonder if there can be a revelation of this priest that is Jesus. That there might have felt like there are spaces in our life that have separated us from God. It can be easy to look at a sacrificial system in the Old Testament and be like, well, that's not the reality I find now. I know for myself, I am prone to create space between God and myself that was never intended to be there. I have, I have created my own constructs of separation and I've, and I've said, well, I can only get to God when I move past A, B, C. Name your list. When we look at Jesus as the high priest, we see one who bridges every gap. Every gap of sin that would say that you are no longer able, no, no, no longer qualified, no longer welcome in the presence of God. Jesus says, I have made a way where there is no way. And I want you to find the wholeness that your heart longs for and desires. This is the story of Jesus this Advent season. That in our waiting, we're finding wholeness in the one who is promised to come. Advent looks back at the time where he came and looks forward to the time where he is to come. But we don't have to wait for another time to discover the wholeness and peace that he wants for us now. It might feel like a high off, impossible idea, this idea of wholeness for your life. But there's something beautiful in knowing that's what God wants for you. For you to feel healed, restored, and whole. Let's pray together. Father, we offer this morning to you for every bit of our being that feels like it is too far away from you, from 
the possibility of healing. We just pray right now, oh God, that you would begin to do a new work within our hearts. That you would, that you would expose the areas where we have created the gaps of separation where we've held on to the, cha the, the chains that have already been loosed, where we've held on to old things that you've already set us free from, and that we would see that you're the high priest that bridges the gap in every area of our life, that there's nothing that you have not reconciled, that you have, there's nothing that you have not healed or restored or made new. So Jesus, I pray that hope would rise in our hearts, that peace is possible. And not just as a momentary relief that we know will end the next day, but in a person that we can find relationship with. And that in your presence we would find wholeness and newness and freedom that we long for. So Jesus, thank you that this morning that invitation that is given to us in the scriptures is given to each person here. You can be made whole. He says simply, just put, my, put your trust in me. Turn from your ways and follow my way. Put your trust in me. Give us courage this morning, Father, to name that which we hold on to, that which blocks us, and invite you into it. Come, Holy Spirit, into those spaces. We need you. It has to be you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.